we're continuing in the book of James. Um, I'm going to read from verses 1 to 10. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. This is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. This is God's word. Uh, evening, everyone. Strong verses uh, that James gives us tonight. You desire, you do not have, so you kill. Uh, I find this sort of quite hard to read that, but I think of uh, Sarah Everard and her alleged killer this week, you know, desires, doesn't have, kills. But James is not writing for the general public. He's writing to, uh, to Christians, to churches, and, um, of course, it behoves us to recognize that that extreme crime, it begins with an unchecked attitude of the heart. Let me lead us in prayer as we look at this together. Our great God and Father, thank you that in your kind wisdom, you tell us what we need to hear. And at times we need to hear a challenge, a rebuke, such as comes in James chapter 4. Would you help us to hear this rightly? For some, it's a warning, don't go there. For others of us, it's a call to action to tonight grieve, mourn, and wail over something that we've allowed to rumble on for far too long. Father, help us to hear rightly what you're saying to us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I went to drive the car. I've been a little while, and, uh, you know, so come out and... Um, uh, mm, nothing. Uh, okay, well, let's go old school. And um, uh, use the key. Hooray! And now the door opens, so door needs repairing. Note to self. Um, uh, key and ignition. Uh, what's happening in the football? Mm, dead. Okay, radio needs repairing. Obviously, there's a problem there. Uh, turn key. Um, nothing. Okay, starter motor is dead. Three, three things are dead. Or, or for the uh, mechanically astute amongst you, you might say to yourself, that's a flat battery, uh, which indeed, with a kindly visit of the AA man and uh, the handing over of a couple of hundred pounds, was indeed the issue. Uh, and a battery was replaced and everything else uh, worked uh, like a dream again, huzzah. Um, why did I tell you that? Uh, it was annoying, I'm just getting it off my chest. Uh, and also, well, James, so far in his letter, he's 
he's um, expressed frustration or he's warned the churches he's writing to of numerous issues. So chapter 2, favoritism towards the wealthy over those who are poor. Chapter 3, all sorts of problems with destructive speech of the tongue and last time in verses 13 to 18, selfish ambition. But here in chapter 4 he says, do you know what, they're just, it's just a dodgy door, radio, starter motor. The problem is beneath them all. The problem is, chapter 4, verse 4, you're an adulterous people. You've been two-timing God, committing spiritual adultery, and that is the source of all your other problems. That is why you've got problems with speech, with favoritism, with selfish ambition, because you're acting in a very worldly fashion. You've befriended the world and made God an opponent. And that's why you've got all these other issues. The sin beneath the sin is this spiritual adultery. So you get quite a change of mood uh, here in our passage tonight. Uh, Thus far in the letter, it's been, uh, oh, my dear brothers and sisters, my beloved brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters, uh, chapter 2, verse 5, dear brothers and sisters, uh, last in chapter 3, verse 10, brothers and sisters, verse 12, brothers and sisters. uh, And here in chapter 4, it's not, oh, my brothers and sisters, it's you're an adulterous people. Enough. Let's cut to the chase now. In many ways, here's the heart of the letter, and it's a call to repent, change. We're going to work through it like this then. Uh, Frustrated desires cause fights, verses 1 to 3. That is just a symptom of spiritual adultery, verses 4 and 5. So we need to humble ourselves before God. Verses 6 to 10, okay? Frustrated desires cause fights. That's a symptom of spiritual adultery. What we're to do is humble ourselves before the Lord. First then in verses 1 to 3, frustrated desires cause fights. First one, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Anne Frank, when in hiding in Amsterdam, wrote in her diary, why can't we all just get along? Well... It's a teenage question, it's a timeless question. And James says the answer is, what causes fights and quarrels? Desires. The battle within you. Desires. In Greek, hedonism. We get hedonism from it. It's the same word as verse 3, pleasures. When Jesus tells the story of the parable of the soils and seed is scattered, 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 and some seed falls on shallow ground and it starts to grow, it is uh, throttled by the desires, same word, of the world. Good things, perhaps, but you care too much for them. And they crush your faith, and they cause warfare. So you get these two parallel sentences, do you see? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. Parallel with you covet, but you cannot give, get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. I don't think literal murder probably here in the book of James. I imagine you have a bit more to say about it. You know, some of you are arguing about the choice of songs and some of you are quarreling about racial issues and some of you are killing the staff and all of those three. We need less of all of those three. I, I think, you know, he'd probably say something a bit more strong if it was literal murder. But that wicked crime begins with an attitude of hatred unchecked or as he says 
a desire for something thwarted. So why do we fight? Well, I guess we know this sort of thing, what it looks like in practice. We get so passionate about something, we desire something so much that anything that gets in our way is expendable and anyone who gets in our way is just collateral damage because we want that. And anything can suffer if it's going to stop me. So it's more things like this. In the office, I want the promotion. And I'll destroy, I'll kill your reputation in order that I get it, and you don't. I might do that. But James is writing to a church. In a church, uh, in this argument, I want you on my side, and I'll kill the truth to get it. I'll lie to persuade you onto my team. Uh, in church, I don't know, I want a spouse and I'll rage against friends who have cut me off in their marriages and I'll rage against anyone who gets in my way to get that. In church, I want to be taken seriously and I'll fight in order to assert my view. That sort of thing. Where do all these fights come from? When you're really annoyed with someone here, what is it that's thwarted? What is it you haven't got? They have got you, haven't got it, that makes you envious and... What is it? James asks. Then he turns to prayer. End of verse 2 and verse 3. Not here suggesting, well, if you pray, you won't have desires. I don't think that's the point. I think he's still describing what's going on. What happens when your desires are out of whack? And he says, look, here are two ways that your prayer life might help diagnose what's going wrong with you. Two red flags to look out for. Uh, The first red flag is you don't pray for something. If there is something that you really desire, but you never pray for it, there's a problem there. Because you probably, if you can't pray for something, you probably shouldn't be desiring it. So daft example, or maybe not. Uh, Lord, um, well, you won't pray it. So uh, you think to yourself, I'd really like an affair with that married woman. Her husband is in the way. I really want an affair with her. But you don't pray about that. Because if you're a Christian, you just, you may desire it, but you're not going to pray that. Dear Lord, for the sake of your name, can I have an affair and not get caught? You just don't pray that. If there's something you really desire, but you can't pray for it, that is a red flag. It ain't a good desire, all right? And then red flag two is you pray for something, but you can't give a reason. You can't explain your motive. So that's much more subtle. Uh, Lord, give me a promotion at work. Imagine a voice pops up and says, why? Why? Well, because I'd like more money to spend on my own selfish desires. Oops. Um, I've said that out loud, but that's what he says, verse 3, isn't it? You don't receive, you ask with the wrong motives. Again, If you desire something but can't explain your motive, that should be a little red flag. I mean, we're all mixed. I mean, it's perfectly reasonable, I think, to pray, Lord, can I have that promotion? But to be honest, money money is a bit bit tight, and my life would be less stressful if there was just a bit more at the end of each month. But I can't just pray that. That's awful. So alongside a bit more to, to make life a bit easier, can you help me be a bit more generous as well? That's okay. I mean, the Lord is the Lord. He knows our hearts. He may as well be honest because he knows what's going on anyway. But do you see, 
If you can't pray for something, there's a red flag, you shouldn't desire it. If you can't explain your motive for wanting something, that also may be a red flag, even though our motives are often very mixed. Now, look, forgive me this one, I don't want to tread on toes, but it seems to me a very real one. Sometimes in a church family, such as ours, there can be a falling out in relationships and quarreling, and sometimes it happens over, oh, you know, I'm single, they're married, they do this, I get excluded, um, and um, again, it's just, what's going on there? What's a good way to pray there? I mean, probably a you know, Lord, can I have a spouse? Because then I'd be as smug as them. That's not a good prayer, you know? Because um, then I'd stop resenting them. It's probably a better prayer, but you can deal with your resentment ahead first. Lord, I just want to be honest, I'd love to get married. I don't know if that's your plan for me or not. Help me deal with my resentment even here and now. And if I marry someone, would it be someone who spurs me on to love you more, not less? I mean, you can be honest. I just really would love it. But if you can't pray for something, it's probably a bad desire. If you can't pray and explain why to the Lord, it's probably a bad desire. And it's probably the source of fighting. Caveat. Not all unanswered prayer is down to poor motives. Okay, just to be clear. Sometimes our prayers are entirely well motivated. Do a lot of pray for this little child who's sick in hospital I want them to be well it's just you know and the answer is not yet the Lord he, he may be saying I want you to persevere in prayer he may be saying I have a different way of answering the prayer you've not thought of look you never don't think you can know the mind of the sovereign God all right don't do that but so many of our desires we can't really pray for them and we can't really explain why we're praying for them. Just be wary of those. Because so much frustration and just uh, resentment with one another, it's thwarted desires that cause it. Frustrated desires cause fights. But, but that is just a symptom, verses four to five. Here we start to get to the heart of things. That's a symptom of spiritual adultery. Verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? I think that's the best translation of a slightly complicated sentence. But again, here's a radical shift in how James talks to his audience. Not my friends, my dear friends, but you've made God your enemy. Whoa, 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 whoa. Strong. Now, when he says here, friendship with the world means enmity with God, understand world rightly. By world, he doesn't mean planet Earth. He doesn't mean if you're concerned for conservation projects you've made an enemy of God he doesn't mean if you like David Attenborough you're you've made an enemy of God all right you can like both of them that's okay by world New Testament often and here means system opposed to God either explicitly system that denies God denies that he's creator or follows a worldly pattern of living, such as you thought of uh, last time in chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. The world which sees selfish ambition as a good thing. 
the world that sees self-promotion as the mark of authenticity. That's opposed to God. You cannot love the Lord and love worldliness, which says love yourself more than anything else. You can't do both. You're too timing. Apparently the royal family was in the news uh, this week. Um, uh, but amazing that 25 years ago, uh, when Diana gave her bombshell uh, interview, there's this, the one line that people really remember from it is uh, when she said, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a little crowded. I mean, understated brilliantly. But uh, there were three of us in this marriage, it was a little crowded. Yeah. And when you have three in the marriage, you're making, you've declared war on your marriage, if I can put it in those terms, when, in this case, of course, Charles has an affair with Camilla, and uh, in an ongoing sense, he's saying, I don't care enough about this marriage. In fact, when I am with her, I am undermining this marriage. When I pursue her, I've declared war on this marriage. You can't have a happy marriage of three. It's a little crowded. And James is making that point here. Adultery is when you give your love, physically, emotionally, to another. And if you have an affair, you've made the marriage, you've, you've declared war on the marriage. You've made an enemy of the marriage. You're acting in a way to undermine or destroy the marriage. And you can't do that. So we think to ourselves, well, that's fine, isn't it? You can, you can have a relationship with God and also cherish the values of the world. You can do both. And the Lord says, no. No. I love you too much. I won't share you with another. I won't have three in the marriage. One has to go. See, the values of this world... Chapter 3, verses 13 to 18, their selfish ambition, their envy. And that comes from committing adultery with the Lord, not loving him exclusively, but thinking you can love both. So sinful human conflict, 1 to 3, it comes from spiritual adultery, verses 4 to, four to 5. What are we to do? Humble ourselves. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord, 6 to 10. Verse 6, but he gives us more grace. There is always more grace on offer from the Lord. Okay? That is one of the wonders of our God, the, the, the most glorious truths of the New Testament. You cannot outsin God. Don't try, uh, but you cannot outsin God's grace. It's not a competition. You're not trying, but you, there is always more. There is always more. You know, some things are a competition at the moment. We seem to be in competition. Will the vaccines outrun the variants? And uh, at the moment, the vaccines are winning, and then the variants are going to come up on the outside. And um, hopefully not. And uh, but you know, oh, there's another. Oh, there's another variant. <gasps> uh, and uh, will the vaccines cope with it? Will they be? Will they need to be re re tweaked? And you know all that. You know this this nervous competition. And I love the fact that you've got a, a South African variant and a Brazilian variant and a 
the Kent variant. I like, you know, I just, good old Kent. Um, but, you know, it's neck and neck. No, it's not, not your sin and God's grace. It's not a close run competition. It's like saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drink all the water from the main system. I'm going to empty the taps of the main system. Well, you can try. There's always more water. I mean, don't try. Um, you, you can't out-sin God's grace. There's always more grace. But there is a condition. You see the condition? Verse 6. He gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. He's quoting Proverbs. Peter quotes it in his first letter too. There's always more grace, favor, but there is a condition to the humble. You do have to say, I need more grace. You do have to say, I have a problem. I, I need more from you. You've got to repent, in other words. What that looks like is explained in verses 7 to 10. I think bookended by the sort of humility in the commands before the Lord. So uh, God shows favor to the humble. Verse 7, submit yourselves to God. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord. I think verses 7 and 10 are the sort of bookends of this description of repentance. And then in the middle you get three ideas and they both, they all, both, three ideas and they all get two lines each. Um, we can probably have them, there they go, uh, on the screen. So I think the three ideas are this. Turn, repent, and you get that in these two sentences. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you, paralleled with come near to God and he'll come near to you. Spatial language. But here you turn from one, you flee from temptation and the devil, and you come near to God in repentance. Here is a volitional decision. Here is I choose, I will plan I will structure my life, my diary, my time, who I see, to live this way and not that way. Come near, repent, turn. The second little word would be cleanse. In verse 8, here's Old Testament language of purification. Wash your hands, you sinners, paralleled with purify your hearts, you double-minded. Same as chapter 1. You've been in the moral muck, you need a wash. Come near to God for cleansing. Repent, cleanse, and then lament. The last one, verse 9. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Parallel to change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. May I just observe, I have never seen that verse on a Christian calendar. No one has that as that. My verse of the year is this. James 4, verse 9. Okay, I just love it. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, he's not saying this must be your pattern of life from here on in. The message of the Lord to you tonight is go out and be miserable all week long. He's not saying that. But grieve, mourn, and wail over your sin. The things that used to make you laugh that were sinful, you should mourn them. 
mourn the way that your sexual behavior damaged someone else. Cry about the fact that you've been fighting with someone at church. Don't just shrug and say, well, we're forgiven, so let's move on. Grieve the way you've committed adultery against Jesus. So if verse 7, 8 is, resist the devil, he'll flee from you, come near to God, he'll come near to you. I think that is uh, a decision. You, you decide which way you're going to walk, which pattern of life you're going to, that's a sort of mental thing. Here, verse 9, is emotional. Within your own temperament, you know, if you're, if you're Northern European, uh, grieving looks one way. If you're sort of Mediterranean, it looks a bit expressive. Uh, you know, it's a bit more like that. You know, within your own temperamental range, of course, it doesn't look the same for everyone. But grieve, mourn, wail over your sin. A, a number of years ago, it must be at least a decade ago, um, as one individual at church, in a period of 12 months, had numerous one night stands. Some people at work, some people in church, people from another church, just numerous. And um, after one of them, uh, we met up, and she said, uh, I've repented uh, before God, so it's all good. Uh, on we go again. I said, yes, it's so wonderful. Can we open a Bible together? Um, let's read this passage. You've repented before the Lord. That is wonderful because there's always more grace. There is always more grace. But if, you, if I may, can I observe? I don't see you grieving your sin. I see this is the same pattern that's been going on and on and on. And I wonder what's going to be different this time. Where is mourning? Where is wailing? Where is grieving? over this and um, the individual declared me a legalist she got another minister from another church to write to me and say I was a legalist and um, I wasn't quite sure what to do that I did write back to the bloke and say I, I just we just read James 4 together um, I, do, I just don't know what to do with that accusation but within our own temperament what does grieve mourn wail look like because what you can't do is have an adulterous affair and say to your spouse, sorry about that, and carry on. Because that sorrow is a very hollow word, unless there's a change. So submit yourselves to God, verse 7, humble yourselves before the Lord, and there is more grace, and he'll lift you up. But you do need to say help. And I'm sorry. So you, when we pull this uh, passage together, look, um, verses 1 to 10. When you find yourself fighting with another believer, upset with another Christian, ask, what is it that's being thwarted? What is it I'm not getting that's making me angry with them, that's causing this resentment, frustration, envy? What, what is going on? Can I pray for it? No. Can I? Yes, but what are my motives? You can go through that process. But underneath that, confess spiritual adultery. Humble yourself before the Lord. Repent of your two-timing God. It's that. 
It's your lack of commitment that causes you to fight with others. That's what's going on. What do we do with this? Or can I suggest that for many of us, most of us, I don't know, it's a warning. Don't go there. I mean, we may all, we all dabble with spiritual adultery. We all dabble with it. But don't go any further. For some of us, for some of us, maybe tonight, verses 7 to 9, you are conscious of something that you've just let run, and now is the night to stop it. And mourn. And grieve. And wail. And return wholeheartedly to the Lord, knowing that when you return, he greets you with more grace. And he lifts you up. Let me lead us in prayer together. Hey, great God and Father, my prayer, my prayer this evening is that we hear this rightly. And uh, for those of us who, well, we all dabble in being a little uh, tepid in our commitment to you. We see how passionately you love us, that you are zealous for our affection. You jealously want us for, us, for yourself, not to timing you with worldly, selfish desires. Would we, would we hear that warning and not go there? Father, for some of us, for some of us, maybe we are caught in a desperately unhealthy pattern and we need to stop. And so would this tonight be an evening where we mourn and grieve and wail and return to you, submit to you, and know your wonderful grace lifting us up once again. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.